We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody's coming at you with Father Daniel Nolan, the priest of fraternity of St. Peter. He's all the way two times was away in Littleton, Colorado. Father Nolan, how you doing? Oh, very good. Thanks, Steve. Before we get started, could you uh, lead us off in a little prayer? Sure thing. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death, amen. Saints Philip and James. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, thank you again. Okay. Uh, Father, you were... Certainly, yeah. Navy, Army? Oh, I can't remember. Uh, yes, I, okay. United States Marine Corps. Marine Corps. You were Marine. I'll, forgive me. I apologize. Dad was Marine. I, I thought so. Father Jackson, he works with as Marine. Uh, I had a brain cramp. I'm sorry. I apologize you know, that's for okay. insulting him uh, with the reference. <laughs> uh, people say, like, uh, the Marines, isn't that a department of the Navy? And we respond, yes, uh, the men's department. <laughs> so that works. Yeah, so uh, I apologize for the insult, <laughs> <laughs> which was perfect for this because a couple months ago, Father, when I was out in Denver with him, he led us in his men's group retreat for about every month for – Four or five months and let off with what we're talking about. A couple today. months ago, Steve, Steve, that that was a year ago. Was that a year? Okay, maybe a year ago. Okay. <laughs> okay, a, a couple months, twelve months ago. Okay, all right. I keep months, going. It, 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 months could have been two to fifty. I don't know. Month. <laughs> in my old age, I forget how many moons ago that was. Anyway, we he let okay. us off in this uh, retreat on manliness. What is manliness? Mm-hmm. Starting with Jocko Willick, and at that time I had no idea who this guy was, what he was talking about, but the concept that he was referring to is fantastic on ownership, which I read the books, it's great if you're in business or life or marriage, family, whatever walk of life, you can literally incorporate that with everything, but focusing on religion was something that we don't like doing. <laughs> so, Father, can you expand on that a little bit? Why'd you even start with that? Sure. Um, oh, who wow. was he? Back with the background for people who don't know who he is. Oh, Jocko Willink. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, Jocko Willink. I mean, and that name Jocko is short for something like I don't know. Maybe it's James or John or something like that. Um, but I don't think you know. He, he. I don't think he came out like eighteen month old, cute little Jocko. Um, 
but he, he's a, a U.S. Navy SEAL, uh, I think pretty high ranking, like a, a captain or higher, a colonel, lieutenant colonel, major, I don't know, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, but in charge of a group of Navy SEALs and uh, you know, ended up writing this book about leadership. And it's very good because he, when he's discussing leadership, he does what's really hard. Most people, when they know a topic, they know something like they know it, but they don't know how to explain it. Or even if they know how to explain it, it's hard to find very good, concise examples. And so that's what Jocko Willink is able to do. He takes his real life experiences from the the Navy SEALs, which also happen to be very exciting, mm-hmm. but he describes them in such a way that he isolates only those principles which directly apply to leadership. And then he'll do that and, and say, here's an example from, or here's a topic, here's a, an aspect of leadership. This is the principle. And here's an application in real life. This is what happened to me. And here's the principle applied. And so then what he does is he teaches people, okay, do the same thing in your own life. Look for when you're in a, a management or whatever, whatever leadership position you're in, uh, you know, look for examples, understand this principle, look how to apply it in your particular situation. And then you'll be able to, to display this kind of leadership as well. So that, that, that's, that's his style. And, and that's what makes him very successful. It's not just that leadership in business or extreme ownership is a, such a great idea. I mean, it is, but the fact that he's able to present it in such a way that it's very clear, uh, I think that that's what makes it so um, appealing and popular. Yes. I, I, even before I started working in a real job again, uh, I had to, I read that going, how do I, how do I act? How do I interact with just uh, coworkers, boss, etc." And before, you know, just, Reading his things were just the how we go about not complaining, uh, focus on the mission, not getting your sights on uh, mm-hmm. what's going on over here. Focus on what you're doing over here. Don't get worried about what's going on over here, and that's or what's going on at homeland, how at the house, uh, problems that might from you know little itty bitty things that would tweak at you. And when you were bringing up with even marriage, church related things owning up to problems instead of complaining about it. How, how do you see, how you do that in religion in general or the, like problems in the church right now? You, it, when we started this, you did sure. this back in when the, uh, the summer of, uh, what would they call that? The summer, sh- summer of shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that would have been, was it last was two, almost two years ago? No, almost two years ago. We kind of started this, but then it really got going last summer. Okay, yeah. So, so it was last summer that we really got going on this. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of stuff there. Um, if I could go back to Jocko Willink. Um, uh, so ownership is one aspect of leadership, uh-huh. um, which I would have to say, um, I'm going to use an example from Gary uh, uh, um, uh, Lagrange. Uh-huh. And he says that sanctity is the normal path for everybody. Everybody who's baptized, baptism is the seed, and like complete and absolute sanctity is the is the is the tree. And just like an oak tree, you look at a giant majestic oak tree, that is what is inside every single little acorn. Uh-huh. And if you plant a little bitty acorn, it's going to grow into this giant oak tree unless something else happens. It gets, you know, rooted out or it gets, you know, um, you know, it falls over, disease, bugs, whatever it may be. But that, that ultimate giant oak tree is inside every single little seed. Um, 
And he, he talks about that to describe that's why everybody who is baptized is supposed to be a saint, because baptism is the seed and sanctity is, is the tree. Unless something prevents it or gets in the way, which is our fault, that's why we go to purgatory, we're supposed to be great saints. But grace builds upon nature. So that little seed of, of um, baptism, that supernatural life inside of us, sanctity is the ultimate result of supernatural life, of being born again. But being born the first time, being born in this flesh, uh, maturity, uh, virtue, goodness, that's what we're supposed to be. Hum human beings and men especially are supposed to be uh, ultimate leaders, calm, confident, in control, in charge, uh, wise, prudent, temperance, just. That's what we're supposed to be by nature, just by nature. Uh, and that's what is meant in the gospel when uh, the, the example of the, 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 the servants who fulfill all the tasks that the uh, householder gives them. And then they say afterwards, we are but lazy and worthless servants. Why? Because we did the bare minimum. Servants are supposed to do this. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at people and, and we look at the natural virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, just at the natural level, that's what we are all supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and even the pagans recognize this. Those, those four cardinal virtues that I just mentioned, that was not something that the church invented the church looked back and those were Roman virtues. Those are recognized by the pagan Romans as being the four cardinal virtues. And the church simply looked at those and said, yeah, you guys got it right. That's correct. Those are the, those, the, that's a good way to describe uh, the, the four springs from which all the other virtues flow. Mm -hmm. So um, when you look at maturity, when you look at um, uh, leadership or, or whatever else it may be, Ownership, which is which is kind of, I think, the, the talk of uh, Jocko Willink's book, Extreme Ownership, I think he's targeting kind of the foundational starting point. Uh, what he means is if you don't own up to your mistakes, if you don't accept your limitations and your weaknesses, uh, you're not going to go anywhere. It doesn't matter how, how many other virtues you had or have or how competent you are. If you can't admit where you're lacking, and where you where you made a mistake, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to stop right there, mm -hmm. and you're not going to go any further. Uh, so that's kind of the idea of ownership. Why is leadership even important? Leadership? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why is leadership important? Um, wow. This is, that's a curveball there, Steve. <laughs> but I got it. Um, leadership, I would say leadership uh, is important because God created the world uh -huh. to operate according to a hierarchy. Uh -huh. A hierarchy is when some things are above other things, some things are greater, and some things are lesser. God created inequality. Uh, and that's why there's a hierarchy in the church. There are men above and there are men below. Um, you, you meant humanity. Uh -huh. um, just like the, the, the sun, right, is the greatest, as, as the medievals would say, the sun is the greatest and most perfect of heavenly bodies and then the moon, and then the stars, and then, you know, earth is in there somewhere, celestial bodies. Um, they recognize that the sun is the principle of, uh, like, vegetation on earth. The sun is greater, and anything that operates by photosynthesis is going to be lesser. So you've got a hierarchy there. Um, and this is why, just as a side note, a historical note, this is why the French Revolution was really bad and an attack on the church mm -hmm. because it said um, equality. There is no inequality. Nobody's greater. Nobody's lesser. Everybody's equal. This mm -hmm. egalitarianism mm -hmm. uh, idea. That's not how God created the universe to be. So leadership, um, 
uh, how can we say this? Um, leadership, we could say, is us describing or maybe maybe um, categorizing those particular virtues required from somebody who is in a position of authority. Mm -hmm. So a person in a position of authority needs to have good prudence, good judgment. He needs to make decisions. He needs to care for the people below him. He needs to set the example. Uh, he needs to be a good father, if, if that be the case. Um, and so all of those qualities that a, a leader needs to display for the benefit of those under him, for the accomplishment of his task, we're going to call that leadership. Mm -hmm. um, but we say the first leader was, um, well, it was, Ultimately, uh, Lucifer was the first leader, mm -hmm. and he rebelled. He misused his position, and uh, St. Michael uh, took his place because he displayed humility. Uh, who is like unto God? Uh, the next leader was Adam. Adam was the next leader, and he was supposed to lead his wife. He was supposed to take care of his wife. He was supposed to teach uh, his wife. Adam was first, and Eve was, was second. Um, and, and he didn't do that. He didn't display good leadership. Mm -hmm. So I would say that leadership is important because anytime you have someone or, or a group of people who depend on somebody else, th that's why it's important. Other people are depending on their leaders to take care of them. And, and when, when, a, when, a person, when, the, when the person in charge of that, the person in charge of taking care of others doesn't do it well, other people suffer. Uh, now, it's, that's not unfair. I mean, well, it is unfair to a certain degree but that's why Christ, that was his example. When he came into the cross, uh, he was the ultimate leader, and he led by example. Mm -hmm. He doesn't ask anything from us. He's not willing to do himself, and that's why he came to earth. And though he was God, he did not claim equality with God, and he was treated as the most abject of men, despised and reputed with sinners. So if, if the ultimate leader was willing to do that and be treated and, and just trampled underfoot by, by bad leaders— mm -hmm. Pontius Pilate was supposed to be a good leader and do his job and don't condemn innocent men to death. Pontius Pilate didn't do that. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees, the scribes, the, the chief priests, they were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah, recognize the Messiah, and accept the Messiah. They didn't do that. Mm -hmm. right? They condemned the Messiah. Uh, they didn't care who the Messiah was. They, they wanted it to conform to their own way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So Christ himself suffered from bad leadership just as everybody else was. All the Jews, the righteous Jews, they were all suffering. Um and he said, uh, do as the Pharisees say, because they sit on the chair of Moses, but do not do as they do for their hypocrites and liars and whitewashed uh, sepulchers. Mm -hmm. So we recognize the injustice of it, but he, he conformed himself to it. So um, uh, what is it? Th that's why leadership is important, because uh, what a good leader can do is you can you can take people and lead them towards sanctity and help them along the way. Or you're going to be a cause of their sanctity in another way, which is by being bad, and they're going to have to rely on Christ, and they're going to—they're just going to have to um, imitate Christ more fully by suffering more, you know, at your hands, the hands of a bad leader. And woe to that leader, right? Woe to that one who leads the little ones astray. In the first week of Lent, your your uh, series of sermons hit or touched upon this topic type deal of bad leadership equals suffering for generations down the road and yeah. those guys in the in the readings were taking ownership of the situation and doing prayer and penance for the sins oh, okay, of the past yeah. mm -hmm. yep um 
Yeah, you know, sometimes I, I listen to my own sermons and I'm like, hey, that's a really good point. Like, I totally forget, you know, what, I, what, I, what I've said. Uh, it just comes in the moment and it's gone. Um, but yeah, that is a theme in the, in the uh, oh yeah, uh, specifically the prophet, um, the chapter, uh, the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the Jews are taken into captivity and they recognize, they say that, that we, are, um, we are justly punished for our offenses, for our sins and the sins of our fathers. So they, they, like I think I said in my sermon, they don't sugarcoat the, the, the Babylonian captivity. Yeah, our fathers really sinned and they put the prophets to death and they, they committed idolatry and that was that was terrible. But, you know, we, we too have sinned. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of an example uh, of, of ownership, of not making excuses and not blaming other people like the Jews tried to do. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the mm-hmm. teeth of the children are set on edge. Uh, in one sense, it's not... Uh, you know, the prophet Daniel, he recognizes that. He says, yeah, we are suffering for what our ancestors did. Uh-huh. The problem comes when you want to push all the blame on somebody else, all of it. And so it's all their fault. We didn't do anything. Uh, you know, we haven't eaten sour grapes. Our fathers eat, have eaten sour grapes. And Daniel, the prophet Daniel's like, no, it, it, we both have, right? They have and we have, and everybody's, you know, at, at fault. Well, what do we do now? Look, we're in a mess. Let's take ownership. How have we sinned? Uh, and what can we do to get better uh, in, in this situation, right? That, that's, that's what he um, uh, w- was, was kind of getting at. And something that would be interesting for us all, like we all should stop and ask ourselves, you know, we complain when we suffer because of the bad behavior of others, mm-hmm. right? We complain and we tend to feel sorry for ourselves. What about when we benefit from the good behavior of others, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody complains about that. Nobody says, oh, that's unfair. Guess what? That is, and strictly speaking, unfair. I benefit from something I didn't do. Somebody else was good. Somebody else was holy, and I benefited. That's not fair. Uh, nobody complains about that because it's easy, and, 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 and they get that benefit. So we have to think, okay, because of the communion of saints, we're all connected. I need to be, I need to be willing to accept the suffering caused by others, uh, as well as the good, right? Except the good and the bad. Uh, I can't only want one and not the other. Uh, That's a little bit immature. So uh, what we ask ourselves is, okay, since that's the case, I don't want to be the one who causes suffering to others. I want to be the one who who benefits others and helps them rather than uh, causes others uh, that, that, um, you know, weakening of faith or or, or damage or whatever it may be or suffering. Um, that's, That's my part in it. So uh, I think that that's a, that's a good thing to remember about about that that the suffering that um, we all the suffering or the blessings we can get gain for each other right we we all we all matter in this and tied back to Jocko is a couple of chapters I read about it was he'd go up to these uh, CEOs and they would complain about oh well the sales guy's not doing this or this group isn't doing this or the marketing group is you know failing at this you know it's all these excuses all you know line by line. When we look into our, I remember people would get mad when you were preach sometimes about this. And it's why I'm tired of blaming myself for other people's problems or problems that last, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, 100 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. How he brings up obviously humility, which is fun to see humility in secular books. <laughs> uh, yeah. As, in your second lecture, you said, how many, how is it that the secular guys are getting this, but we aren't? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, uh, you know, rem- remember these questions. Is I'm, I've got four or five things I want to talk about, so don't let me uh, don't let me forget that one. Go for it. Um, wait, what was your earlier question? 
the, the one beginning, before that. The beginning of the question yeah. of this one? Oh, people got tired tired of hearing about my problems. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I go back to what I said at the beginning about the oak tree, like the, the, the seed mm-hmm. and how um, there's an idea that grace builds on nature and that the supernatural virtues are not going to replace the natural virtues. And I, not enough people know about this, but um, uh, temperance, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, everybody's supposed to have those, whether you're Catholic or not, whether you're baptized or not, everybody's supposed to be temperate. Everybody by nature is supposed to recognize I should not be a glutton. I shouldn't be a drunkard. Right? I shouldn't indulge myself in whatever pleasures are in the world. And this is why actually in Romans chapter one, um, St. Paul is talking to the Jews and he says that the Gentiles um, had not the law, but the law of the Jews, but they, um, they fulfilled the law in that they obeyed the natural law. Because St. Paul says there, without, without the law, there is no sin. Mm-hmm. And he says the Gentiles, though they had not the law, are not without sin. They didn't have the Jewish law, but they had the natural law. Mm-hmm. And they knew they were not supposed to do these things. Um, and the, the spe- specific thing he mentions uh, is um, men committed unnatural acts with men and women unnatural acts with women. And he says they reap the reward of their uh, wickedness in their own flesh, right? Uh, diseases. So um, that's something against the natural law. Uh, so uh, the Catholics, you know, we have this idea that I'm going to be holy if I pray 15 rosaries a day and I go to mass every day and receive Holy Communion every day and I do all these prayers and all these things and they never once think about, do I control my tongue? Am I responsible? Am I mature? Am I like super sensitive do i get upset at every time somebody says something to me and like and like get all angry and start pointing the finger at them right people today we haven't been the sad thing is uh, th- this is the sour grapes our fathers ate in this country mm-hmm. the children were not given that patrimony uh, common courtesy um you know stand up shake hands say how do you do this is how to answer the phone this is how to dress properly this is how to speak properly uh, we didn't get that and those cultural norms are part of the natural law. Human beings are supposed to behave in a good and a virtuous manner. Mm-hmm. And so um, if we don't understand that, if we don't understand that we need to build ourselves into um, you know, the, these virtues that are not per se supernatural, like, like punctuality or um, uh, you know, good, good grammar, mm-hmm. uh, dressing well, behaving well, speaking well, th- those, that's kind of like the foundation for the supernatural virtues to take us higher. One of the things that was mentioned about the saints, the Curie of Ars especially, is uh, noblemen, French noblemen, would go to Ars and go to confession and be received by, by the Curie of Ars, and they would think he, ha- he was a noble uh, of noble birth because he said he's so courteous, he knows what to do, he knows all the customs. And uh, the Curie of Ars was a peasant, but it was charity that inspired in him to treat others like Christ. And when you have that attitude, you're going to look for ways to be courteous, to be kind, to be polite, and so on. Uh, and then this is another thing people don't recognize that courtesy and politeness, in fact, the very French, the custom of the French aristocracy came out of Benedictine monasteries. Mm-hmm. Is you had everybody would go to Benedictine monastery, peasant, nobility, kings, um, it didn't matter. Their, their, their relatives and friends would go to visit and be so impressed with the charity of the monks, they would bring it back. And, and cultivate it in, in their own um, households. And that was kind of the beginning of, of that, that European aristocracy. 
aristocracy means rule by the best, but rule by the most virtuous. Mm -hmm. and, and it came out of Benedictine monasteries. It came out of charity. So um, people want to bypass those natural virtues because it's hard. It requires me to work on my own um, faults and weaknesses. And, and the culture we, in which we've been brought up is a uh, very, very selfish culture. We've got to fight against that. In fact, you know, it's like in the air we breathe. If we don't, if we're not made aware that, um, you know, what we have imbibed from our culture, from our childhood, we, we need to be known. What are the mistakes there, right? What am I kind of taking for granted that isn't really true? Um, so um, I would say that a great deal of sanctity and, and ownership is going to be uh, realizing that I am probably not as mature as I should be. Mm -hmm. I am probably not as, um, you know, like our, our culture of entertainment. I probably think I deserve more than I do. I expect more luxuries than I really should have or need. I expect to be entertained. I expect, you know, we have all these expectations that aren't per se our fault, but this has been communicated to us by our culture. And if we don't stop and try to try to think about, is that really good? Is that really a mature attitude? Um, we're going to be off on the wrong foundation. Um, and, and this is why uh, we would say humility is a foundational virtue. Uh, because humility, a humble person is a truthful person. Humility and truth are convertible. Uh, a humble person is a person who can accept the truth. Right? When you come up and you tell a humble person something unflattering, but it's true, mm -hmm. A proud person is going to get angry. They're going to be offended. How, how dare you say that to me? That's not true. Whatever. That's pride. It wounds their pride. But a person of humility, they love the truth wherever they can find it. I, whether it, I don't care if it's true about this, about that, about me. I don't ask, how does it make me feel? I ask, is it true? And if it's true, I accept it. That's the hallmark of humility. And people, you know, there's a mistake to think that um, humility means... Uh, always claiming to be nothing or low, like, oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm at the whatever. You know, it's kind of like fishing for compliments. Yeah. A humble person, because they accept the truth and look, they look for the truth, if they're competent at something, if they're good at something, they don't say they're not. They say, yeah, I'm, I'm good at this. I have this ability. I have that capacity. And people say, oh, that was, you know, you did a wonderful job. That was really great. They say, okay, thank you very much. You know, I am good at it. But they don't think that they're better than you because of it, or they don't think that overall they have a greater um, status than they do simply because they have this or that particular skill. Mm -hmm. And, and, and um, for everybody, that's important because if um, you could say that uh, insecurity and fear come from a, a weakness of mine being exposed that I don't want people to know about. Or I feel off guard, like I put up my defense because I don't want people to know I, I'm, I'm vulnerable or incompetent. And somebody gets through that defense and now I'm, I'm on the defensive. But if I accept it and, and realize that, yes, that's a weakness I have, but I'm not wounded by that. I'm not afraid of it admitting, yes, this is true. Like I'm, I'm not a good public speaker or I'm, I'm pretty bad with organization or my, my, my whatever it may be. Um, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit hot-headed or something like that. You know, if we, if we accept that, there's no threat and we don't get defensive. And when people get defensive, they get angry, they, they get combative, you know, and, and there's all these problems arise. Um, so, uh, so a leader, so a leader is confident when he knows 
exactly what he's dealing with. Like what's, what's the playing field? What, what are the cards on the table? And his own weaknesses and his own strengths are on the table, just like everybody else's. Mm -hmm. And so when he's making decisions and when he's thinking about what to do, if somebody gives a suggestion that's a good suggestion and it's contrary to his, he doesn't take it as a personal offense that somebody doesn't like my idea or my idea is not good enough or my decision isn't good enough. He just thinks this decision isn't good enough, whether it's mine or anybody else's. I don't care. I don't care who makes the idea, who, who implements the idea. I just want the best idea there is. And if that um, uh, reveals a weakness of mine, I don't have a stake in it. I already know my weaknesses. And if, if you can point out to me another weakness I didn't know I have, I'm a happier man because now I know more of the truth. Uh, this is, and this is the lesson I, I always tell people about St. Peter. St. Peter was a better man and a better leader after he denied our Lord than before. Mm -hmm. Because before he didn't know himself. He didn't know that he was capable of denying our Lord. He just swore up and down he would die with our Lord. And he was ready to do that. He drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and was ready with, you know, James and John and Christ and himself, four guys against 60 temple guards. And he drew his sword and was ready to, to strike. You know, and we read about the high priest's ear getting cut off. He was not aiming for the high priest's ear. He was trying to split him down the center of the head. He was going to start a brawl. And he expected to win with four against 60. So that's courage. That's bravery. That's faith. But he, but he wasn't prepared to face the crucifixion of Christ. Uh -huh. That was just not on his radar at all. And when he got faced with that reality, he fled. He didn't know that about himself. And what did he do afterwards? He turned and he wept and he went back to Christ for forgiveness. And that's what leaders need to be able to do. That's what anybody needs to be able to do when we are confronted with how we have betrayed Christ and we didn't think we were capable of it, we have to be able to accept that in humility and say, this is the truth about myself. I didn't want to be true, but I need to accept it. And now going forward, now I can be careful because I know myself and I know my weaknesses. And if I'm not careful, I can fall again. So that's a strength. Humility, humility and accepting my weaknesses makes me strong because I know you know, it's a part of knowing the situation. There's the outside situation and then there's the inside situation. And I need to know both. If I know both, I can make better decisions and I'm a better leader. What are some practical ways that people can do that with themselves? Church, you know, church crisis, family problems. Uh, maybe your priest isn't up to par in your own mind, except your bishop, maybe. What are some practical ideas that people can do instead of, typing a blog out that they can do to do repent, do penance, yeah. etc. Well, um, I mean, typing a blog might be one of those things people can do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and um, it would be a mistake to think that um, the virtue of piety, which, which is respect for our, those above us, those in charge of us, whatever respect for leaders will say piety, mm -hmm or meekness or humility or obedience um, does, doesn't mean we can't, um, how could I say this, express our concerns to our leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with Jocko Willing, what you know, what you, what you um, I don't I haven't read the book, um, but what I'm absolutely certain would have happened in reality is there are times when the leaders, you've got, you know, say the, the um, commanding officer and then his second in command, the executive officer, 
it's not all roses and bubble gum between leaders. I mean, they'll come out and the commander says, this is the way it is. And the exo says, this is the way it is. This is what we're doing. This is the plan. I don't want to hear it. Let's get out there and make this happen. That's what everybody sees. What, what everybody doesn't see is behind closed doors. I mean, the exo and the CEO going at it. And the XO telling the officer, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. This is a mistake. This is the dumbest idea. I mean, that's the job of the executive officer is to, is to roast the commanding officer and tell him what he really thinks and to give him a, 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 a full explanation. The, the, the executive officer is the one who needs to go out there among all the people and say, look, this is what the troops are saying. This is what the people are saying, and they're not happy. And, and you know, this is the reality of the situation. He presents that to the commanding officer. He doesn't sugarcoat it and try to uh, play interference and protect the commanding officer from bad decisions and, and, and the real opinions of people. But guess what? If you've got a commanding officer, if you've got a leader who's not confident and he doesn't want to have his weaknesses exposed, he's going to get a yes man as his second in command mm-hmm. because he wants to be protected from the bad opinions. He wants to be protected from facing his own inadequacies and uh, uh, shortcomings. And so when you get a bad leader, when you get an, a, a man who's not confident, a man who can't own up to his mistakes, he is going to perpetuate in his organization uh, covering up his weaknesses. And I would say that's a big problem in the church. At that point, uh, the, the poor people, uh, th- and this is where people will get sick of hearing about they need to change because they see that hypocrisy. They see that the leaders are not displaying the virtues that they themselves are asked to display and, and, they, and they want justice to be done. They want somebody to point that out. And so that's why it's important for, say, middle management, you know, uh, uh, priests uh, to be able to say, yes, there are problems. There are failures in the leadership. There is cowardice. There is insecurity. But um, there's not much we can do about that, right? We do what we can. Um, and if we're going to um, complain or, or, or um, uh, try to do something about that, it has to be done respectfully. You know, we can't go up and start yelling at the bishop or calling the bishop a coward or saying that he's faithless or he's a bad shepherd or whatever they may be. Um, what, what, what does that do? Mm-hmm. Um, what I always tell people is that if you have a problem with a leader, focus on the actions and not on the person. Is Rather than saying, my bishop is bad uh, or my bishop is weak or my bishop is a coward, you, you say something like, um, uh, negligently canceling masses without serious reasons um, would not be the actions of a good shepherd. Um, Now, whether or not this or that particular bishop or our bishop has negligently canceled mass, I'm not saying. Uh I'm just putting out the principles. Uh And so that that can be a way um, to address... um, Attack the air without attacking the person. Yes, yes, the idea without the person, right. Uh So... Uh, where where we go? Oh, what what can people do, right? Um, I think that's the first thing they can do is that okay. Here's my problem with my bishop or my priest or whatever. How what about his activity would I criticize and, and why and for what reason? And this is where most people, you know, it takes a bit of a discernment of, of the ability to make distinctions, and that's that's kind of getting into some. Um, I, I would say philosophical skills, being able to to, to divide and, and distinguish. Um, but I think a good practice for everyone is to ask themselves, can I, how would a saint act or the saints never lost their peace in, in, in approaching this, 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 um, uh, problem 
what's causing me to lose my peace? What am I angry about? What am I insecure about? And, and what are my problems, right? A, a big problem with people is that they want to point the fingers at others and they don't want to point it at themselves. So if I don't know what the inside problems are, I'm not going to know what the outside problems are, right? I might be mad at my bishop and it turns out I have a, an unrealistic expectation of what a bishop should do. That could be a problem. And another person's whole anger is because they've got this, this fantasy idea of the way the church is supposed to be. And it's just not realistic and they need to grow up and, and get and be mature. That's what you'll be able to do by focusing on yourself first is you look for all the problems that might be in here before you start pointing the fingers and going out there. And people, they want to do the opposite. They want to start out there first and never think about themselves. Yeah. He brings it up in the book. Uh, he calls it detachment. If you shockingly enough, detach from the situation, scan the surroundings, see what's going on and then execute after you figure out a plan for whatever the problem is. Right. Um, and that's a great word detachment. And, and, you know, going back to what you mentioned earlier, like why is it these pagans are um, recognizing these truths, but not in the church? A um, couple of reasons. I think that the, uh, the Marine Corps, especially, but the military in general is very Thomistic in their outlook mm -hmm. in that. I mean, when they, when they teach lieutenants, because if you make a mistake in battle, uh, you lose. Like, you don't lose money, you don't lose status, you don't lose reputation. You're dead. Mm -hmm. And your country could be taken over. So the consequences for being wrong in battle are absolute and catastrophic and, and ultimate, final. Like, you make this mistake, there's no second chance. It's over. You lost. Mm -hmm. So so the, the military strategy is ultimately realistic. Like, you know what? Cut the crap. I don't care what, what philosophers say, what Nietzsche says or Kant or, you know, does reality exist? Go ahead and stick your head up out of a, a fighting hole when there's machine gun fire. Do those bullets really exist? You know, you'll find out pretty soon. And, and what are the consequences? Right. Um, and, and they taught us that it doesn't matter what you think is true, what you want to be true, what should be true, what the manuals say should be true, what's happening right now and what is true. Right. That, that's the military mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's very Thomistic. Um, so when you uh, when you approach reality from that perspective, you get uh, very, I would say, natural law results is because nature operates according to God's plan. And when you are ultimately realistic and when you are detached and I have no philosophy, I'm not projecting anything from my mind onto reality. When I just look at reality and take it for what it is, you find truth. You find God. You find God's laws. Um, and so that's what that's why this book is landing on Catholic teaching and the teaching of the saints, because the saints were starting with truth. The saints were starting with God and drawing things down to us while at the same time, recognizing what it was here and bringing and, and tying it back together with God. That, that's that's um, philosophy and theology. They meet in the middle. That's why they, they, they um, complement each other. So. Uh, the, the, and the perspective of the church has always been um, you take whatever is true, regardless of the source. And if it's true, you accept it. That's humility. Um, and there was this, this uh, argument in the past about, um, I think it was Origen, who said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? In, in that it was, and maybe I, I can't recall exactly, maybe it was Augustine, I don't know. Um, but there was the idea like when philosophy was, was, was being introduced into the church, there were those who said, no, this is, this is pagan. And yes, maybe it's clever, maybe it's you know, logical, whatever, but we have the Bible and we learn our truth from Christ. And, and so Athens 
you know, the center of logic and center of science, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? We want to preach Christ and him crucified. And then the church recognized, no, look, Christ is the author both of the Bible and of nature. And he doesn't tell us one thing in the Bible and a different thing in nature. They both complement each other and perfect it. And it was um, Aquinas in the Summa who says, uh, following others after him, that the Bible is perfect and contains all truth. But what about the mind that studies the Bible? That needs to be perfected as well. And we do that. We perfect the mind with philosophy, proper philosophy and logic. And then we use that to study the Bible and we bring out the perfections of the truths of God. So that is um, similar. It doesn't matter. Athens, uh, Greece, Sparta, or Jocko Willink Navy SEALs, it doesn't matter where the truth comes from. If it's true, you accept it and you learn from it. Um, and again, go back to Romans chapter one. The Gentiles have no excuse not to know the living God, who the invisible God, from the visible things which are. And so we just from life itself, just from reality, we can come to know the reality of God. And so why are we surprised when that happens, when pagans, you know, or whatever, do recognize God's truth from reality? They're supposed to. Our mind recognizes truth. And not tell anybody to read Muhammad, but if you read the Summa, which you should, Aquinas quotes Muhammad not all the time, but he does when he's right on something or another pagan or a heretic in general. I think he's like eight yeah. or nine different guys he's used. Right. And I don't know if it's Muhammad, but the um, um, uh, Muslim philosopher uh, of Arouez. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is why uh, which is why actually Aristotle was was cast in suspicion in coming into the into the West, into the Latin church, because uh, Aristotle had been filtered through and passed on by the uh Islamic philosophers, and they had intermixed their own commentary onto Aristotle, which was which was incorrect. Mm -hmm. And St. Thomas Aquinas kind of separated the two. Like, like this is this is what we've gotten from the Muslims. This is Muslim, and this is Aristotle, and and that's true. So, so owning it, how can owning we, it? How how can we man up and own it? How do you? How's right? Extreme extreme ownership. Yes. So how if, we, if how we go we back to that, it? yeah. Um, It goes back to um, being willing uh -huh. to accept your faults and your failings. Uh -huh. Being willing to say, okay, um, I've got to take an honest look at myself and, and think what is true. And, you know, for me, the best thing, one of the best things I ever did was when I started, I went to college and I was a young man and I was, you know, arguing with people and getting into kind of debates and things. I wanted to be right. I, I didn't like being wrong. And what I, what I discovered was um, the only way I'm going to be right all the time is if I really, really listen to what other people are saying and, and try to learn, okay, is anything they're saying true? Like maybe their overall message is wrong. Maybe they're wrong about a lot of stuff. But if anything at all they say is true, I want to accept that and know that and then make it my own. So when you, when you go through life looking for truth, wherever you can find it and always being willing to um, a constant recycling in your mind. Okay. I accepted this as true, but I didn't really examine it like in a hard light. I got to really think about it. Is this just me being selfish? Is this me being stubborn? Is this, are my emotions coming into play? And the way I would look at if I would suspect my opinion, if I started to get upset about it, like if somebody challenged me and I felt an emotional rise, I would be suspicious of myself and be like, okay, I, I'm not detached from this idea. 
Uh, because anytime when somebody gives you an opposite opinion, uh, the natural feeling is they're opposing me. They don't believe me. Uh, and they should like uh, something I said isn't good enough. Um, and we have to get over that instead rather look at it as, okay, they need this idea explained to them in a different way. Or maybe um, what I thought, I thought I had 90% of the truth. It turns out I had 50% of the truth and I, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And this person, um, I can learn something from them. Uh, so it's, it's, that's an important, uh, I would say skill and ability uh, to start with with ownership and whether it's an idea or whether it's a virtue or whether it's a behavior like I didn't see anything wrong with my behavior but um, other people do Accept uh, that I may not see and understand everything and be willing to change and, and learn from others I think is going to be the first um, kind of baseline and and from that ownership is knowing when my best isn't good enough um, and people, let's see, they, they, um, the two virtues of accountability and responsibility uh, need to be understood uh, very well. Like you can be held accountable mm -hmm. for something that you couldn't change. And that's not, um, that's not unfair. I mean, it's, it's unfair in a sense, but it's like the um, captain of a ship when the ship runs aground he's relieved of command. Even if like he was fast asleep and somebody else is in charge, he's responsible for the training of the crew and everybody under him. He's accountable. Uh, even though he could have had the best training program, it's just sometimes that happens, but that's important because it sends the message. This is serious and you need to take it seriously. Um, and responsibility, uh, we could say um, produces rights. Rights come from responsibilities. If I'm responsible for something, well, if I'm responsible for uh, training people, you've got to give me the freedom to train them. Uh, so that the, he's making decisions. What are we going to do? How are we going to train? What are they going to learn? What are they going to know? Um, so that's, that's um, I would say that the, the um, idea behind ownership is that every single person has the right to exercise free will. God gave us free will and he, uh, um, and we have the right to exercise that, but why? To save our souls, to do what is good, to return to him, to make it to heaven, to become a saint. And if we're responsible for that, and if I don't do the right thing, that's my fault. That's that's why purgatory exists, is because I could have done something differently and didn't. Um, and We just lost her. There you go. Okay. Um, knowing that, it's not enough to sit back and then complain when things don't go well. Or if I don't know how to be a saint and be like, well, I guess I'm just, you know, going to kind of wait for sanctity to happen or other people become saints, but not me. I need to be reading the lives of the saints. I need to be uh, um, instructing myself. How do I learn how to exercise my free will? How do I take responsibility for my own actions? How do I, how do I grow up in life? Um, and, and, you know, if, a great way is like people will get accused. Well, like people accuse us of something. Don't think about all the ways they're wrong. Look for that 10% way that they are correct. You know, what they say is true mm -hmm. and I need to accept that. Um, or in my own behavior, if my life is difficult, uh, what am I do? Throw myself a pity party and say, Oh, my life is so hard. Stand up and do something, right? Take ownership of your life. I can't change all these things outside of me, but I can change what's inside of me. 
And that's what God is calling me to do. He's gave me free will. Um, and even, again, this goes back to the natural virtue. Even the pagan philosophers recognized nothing exterior to, the, to, to man can affect man. It's only the value I place on exterior things, right? It's I'm grieved at the loss of something outside of me. That's my decision. Uh, or I'm elated at something outside of me. Again, that's my decision. It's the value I place onto it. I mean, this is getting into a bit of stoicism, but there is that element of um, we have a decision and a choice about how to react and how to behave. We can't help the feelings that we have. Feelings just arise within us, desires to rise. Mm -hmm. What do I do with those feelings? What do I do with those desires now that I have them? That decision is mine. And so that, in a certain sense, that's ownership. And when a decision of mine has resulted in something that is good or not good, that other people like or don't like, accept it. Take ownership. Okay, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. I should have done that. I'm going to learn for next time. You know, done deal. Yeah, I mean, if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about on this, the guy that wrote the book had two people killed in a mission. And his commanding officer was coming in and was going to, everyone was expecting him to put the blame on other people. And he stands in front mm -hmm. of the commanding officer. No, it's my fault. I'm, I'm the commander in this room. The buck stops and he, here. He, and, and he trained his team well because he goes to the team and they all do the right thing. He asks every single one of his team, what went wrong? How did those men die? And every single man says, you know, it was my fault. I didn't do communications well enough. It was my fault. I was overextended. It was my fault. I didn't do this. And the commander listens to all of them, and he could have pinned it on any one of them. He could have pinned it on anything, and he said, nope, it's my fault. I'm the guy in charge. I'm at the top. Ultimately, the responsibility is mine, and I'm going to take the hit for this. I, and, he, and he said what he did wrong. Yeah, he just didn't exercise good command and control, and he took the hit for everybody. Um, he tried teaching that, the CEO this. Uh, the CEO was just running the company into the ground. And he tells them where it was the president. He said, go tell the CEO, it's your fault. This is what you're going to do. Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, no, I can't do that. They'll kick me out. They'll fire me. Go in there, do it. And it took him two days to figure it out to do it. And he got a promotion out of the deal. <laughs> so, and that's the thing. People don't understand humility. They think if I admit my weaknesses, if I show people my faults, then they won't like me. They won't respect me. Um, they'll look down on me. They'll make fun of me. I'm exposed, right? I'm vulnerable. And they think that if they admit their faults, that, that that's a weakness. When on the contrary, just think about any time somebody else admits their faults. Do you think less of them? No, you think more. Because guess what? Behind the fault, or rather I would say, yeah, behind the fault itself is the ability to admit the fault. Mm -hmm. And that's courage. And that's strength. And that's honesty. And that makes you trust somebody. You think about that. When, when, when somebody else admits their fault to you, when you correct somebody and they own up to it and they're humble and they're going to say, yeah, you know, that's, that's not something good I have, but I'm, I'm working on it and I know it's a fault and, you know, I'm sorry, I can just be patient. You're just like, that's great. I can work with this guy. You trust that person. He's honest. And I tell you, that virtue right there, honesty and trustworthiness is the foundation of every single relationship. If you can't trust somebody, you can't have a relationship with them. You can't have a real one. And that's why humility is the bedrock of the spiritual life, is if you're not humble, you can't have a relationship with God because you're not being real. You're not being honest. He's not having a relationship with you. You're trying to have a relationship with God with a real this person that doesn't exist. God wants a relationship with you, 
the real you, and that's you with all of your flaws in, in reality. So you've got to admit your flaws to yourself. And when you admit them to others, you can have a relationship with others. And especially with leader and led, they'll trust you and, and they'll follow you and they'll help you. And leadership is really about finding out the strengths and weaknesses of everybody so you can protect people from their weaknesses and put them where their strengths are going to come to the surface. That's what a, a good leader, a great leader does. What are some good books on humility? Humility of heart? <laughs> yeah, um, good books on humility. Um, yeah, yeah um, I don't know humility specifically, but books that I always recommend to people, uh, Thomas Akempis, Imitation of Christ, uh, that's an excellent book. Francis DeSales, um, Introduction to the Devout Life is a very good book. Um, uh, Devotion to the Sacred Heart uh, from St. Margaret Mary Alaco. That's by Father John uh, Croset, who wrote that book. That's an excellent one. Uh, that, one's, that one's a hard one to read. Uh, uh, introduction to um, Devotion to the Sacred Heart, because it's written from the perspective of uh, 17th century French piety. Yeah. You, you got you to know what you're getting into when you read that book. But when you do know, you're like, okay, I get it. I, it, it all makes sense. Uh, those are just a, a few, uh, in addition to the one you mentioned. Yeah, Very yeah, good. Humility of Heart. Yeah. And I think, oh, I think Tan publishes all of them. Uh, just side note. <laughs> oh, Tan. I tell you what, Tan publishers, um, the two most excellent books, uh, not on specific on humility, but I always, always, always recommend these books from Tan is The Incredible Catholic Mass uh -huh. by Father Martin Von Kochem and Purgatory by Father Felix Schub. Because I like, I love those books because they bracket the spiritual life. The book on Purgatory makes us really fear sin and understand that there are consequences to sin, even if they've been forgiven. Uh -huh. It makes us like, oh, okay, I don't want sin. I'm afraid of sin, and I want to try harder. It's a negative reinforcement. It's a negative motivation. On the other hand, the book on The Incredible Catholic Mass, you're like, wow, the Mass is awesome. Grace is awesome. I want more of it. I want to grow in virtue. And when I go to mass, I can participate better. I'm thinking about more. It just opened up the whole spiritual life. And now I try harder, not because I'm afraid of sin, because I love virtue. So I, they, they give kind of the, uh, um, the paradigm for growing in the spiritual life. And so I just always would recommend anybody read those books yeah, they both in, in any order. Do what? It doesn't matter. Read in the middle, start in the middle, start at the end. Yeah. It just pick a chapter and start reading. It's fascinating. It's got stories, miracles, examples, dogma. I just love those books. I think Great both of them sucker punched me in the stomach when I first read both of them. I mean, Purgatory was right when I was coming back into the church. Woo, scared. You know what out of me. And yeah. then you, are, you told me to read The Incredible Catholic Mass, and that just was one of those like, all right, I'm a terrible person. I need, <laughs> but, I need, see, to, I need to step my game up a little bit better. Yeah, do more of the game. Now, let's talk about that. Just just good guilt and bad guilt. Uh -huh. Bad guilt is when we read something and we're like, oh, I'm a terrible person. And then we feel deflated. Like we want to give up and be like, I just can't do it. Why do I even try? Uh, nothing I do matters. That is bad guilt. Resist that like a temptation. Uh -huh. Good guilt is the guilt's like, I got to step up my game. Okay, I'm not doing enough, but I can do more. With all these graces available from the mass, uh, I can do this. And something to, especially to keep in mind with that book, Purgatory, is the uh, punishment for religious, for the monks, the nuns, and the priests are always like 10 times worse than for lay people. Uh -huh. The punishments of lay persons are, um, I mean, they're, they're not good, they're harsh, but l when you read the book, look at what the religious, like their faults and their sins and their punishments as compared to the lay persons, their faults and their punishments. And you'll see that they're very different. Like the religious get punished for very, very small faults 
but for laypersons, it's like, you know, they defrauded somebody for 20 years, you know, as a, as a ledger or something like that. <laughs> so uh, there are, there is a different standard because some people, especially these poor women, these moms, these, these busy housewives, they're trying to take care of all these kids. And they read this book about these nuns and these nuns have these little tiny faults and they hide all this purgatory. And then the moms feel like, well, if that was their purgatory, what's mine going to be host. like? <laughs> uh, it's going to be a lot easier. I yeah. tell you, you, moms, generally you do your purgatory <laughs> taking care of your kids. I mean, you, you've got to be, that's no excuse, but uh, don't forget that your very jobs, like I say, moms with kids, they're always feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, instructing the ignorant, admonishing the sinner, right? Moms do all those things. Like the whole life is Daily. a prayer. <laughs> so uh, they, 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 um, it's going to go pretty, pretty well for, for moms of big families on Judgment Day. Right? Yeah, which is the ultimate uh, ownership day. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Ownership, <laughs> final judgment. That's, that's where it all comes out. Well, Father, I appreciate it. Any final thoughts on the matter? Um, yeah. Um, no, I just, uh, I guess there's a more about this than I, I didn't think I would let, be able to last an hour, but here we are already done and <laughs> you haven't, you haven't contributed much. I didn't give you much of a chance. So uh, I, I just know, shoot maybe. the questions out. Let the, let the professional, uh, recite back. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. It's a, it's a topic I, um, um, I mean, I enjoy it cause you know, I spent six years in the military, um, uh, six years in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And I, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, at the seminary then integrating the two. Uh, so a, a friend of mine, actually, he asked me, I would talk to him about leadership and I was, I was kind of complaining about leadership in the church, like over and over again at the seminary. And he got sick of it, you know? And, and like, I, I would, I would tell him these things and he would, he's like, nah, that's just whatever, you know, this is not the Marine Corps and that kind of stuff. Anyways, he became a pastor and he wanted to learn leadership. So we got Jocko Willing's book, Extreme Ownership. Mm-hmm. And he called me later and he said, you know, Listening to that book is like listening to you for seven hours. I thought, okay, all right, you know, there, there we go. Thank you. Finally, uh, he said the difference is he gives, like I said, specific, concrete examples, not just principles. Like I would only talk about principles and say this is wrong, that's wrong, but Willing says this is why. Like here's how to understand. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's something that um, uh, it's just a topic that that I, I think you know, all you find all fi- kinds of leadership books applied from the military to business what about applying it from military to the church right from a military to a pastor to, right. or to a um you know something like that i think that would be something i would i would um well i have i've actually been thinking a lot about that so i don't know we'll see. i know a publisher if you ever want to do that <laughs> <laughs> i'll keep that in mind uh, father can we give you a final blessing sure certainly benedictio de omnipotentis participate e get spirit sancti descendit super voice at money at semper amen thank you father Okay, good talking again, Steve. Bye-bye.